Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. John Ray is a lawyer for the families of Gilgo Beach victims, Shannon Gilbert and Jessica Taylor. And he and I had a conversation about current developments in the case. And we also talked about what went wrong and why these cases were cold for so very long. John Ray, uh, you represent the families of Shannon Gilbert and Jessica Taylor. It was Shannon's disappearance, of course, that triggered the discovery or the investigation that led to the discovery of the four women. Three of of those women have been connected uh, to Rex Heuerman, who's now in custody. Shannon's death was not connected to Heuerman. if, If you wouldn't mind, just tell us what we know about Shannon's disappearance. What has been firmly established about uh, her disappearance? She is the first one uh, to have been of those victims who were in Gilgo Beach and Oak Beach on Long Island. She's the first one to have been searched for as missing in that context, in that area. She's the last one to have been found. There were 10 others found before her. Those 10 others included Jessica Taylor and uh, a baby and a a, um, cross-dressing Asian, young Asian male, and then some other females. So amongst whom are the four Gilgo that, of which three have been charged against uh, Huraman. The other one, the fourth one, laid in a row with the others, is likely to be charged very soon from what the district attorney says. When Shannon disappears, that triggers this whole uh, series of events. She is a, um, an escort who comes from Jersey City, New Jersey, just over the border of New York. And she lives there with her boyfriend, Al- Alex Diaz. And she was doing escort work in New Jersey until she got arrested there, and then turned her attentions to Manhattan, New York, Long Island, and more particularly, searching to get into the wealthier man's market in Long Island. She went from Jersey City to Manhattan and driven from Manhattan out to Oak Beach in Suffolk County to a John's house named Joseph Brewer. When she uh, went across from Jersey City to Manhattan and then from Manhattan to Brewer, there were federal crimes being committed there, by, uh, certainly by Brewer by her driver, Michael Pack, because they were crossing state lines for the purposes of engaging in this crime. We don't really know how the connection took place between Shannon and her her driver and Brewer. We have Brewer's statement and we have Pack's statement about how it occurred. Their statements are very vague. They're not necessarily correct. But nonetheless, this, this hookup takes place on May 1st, 2010. So that was on a, uh, it was actually on a Saturday, early morning hours on Saturday. She is driven out to Oak Beach, and which is kind of a, a bungalow community that turned into a full-time year-round community and was once really the center of a lot of parties. It was kind of a happy party town with uh, also the Oak Beach Inn, which was rather a, an infamous destination place right there at Oak Beach uh, for drugs, alcohol, sex, you name it, the, the all night, you know, everything. She goes to Brewer's home, and after a fashion, she calls 911. 
Now, she was there at Brewer's house longer than the normal stint for a tryst. And that's because, according to Brewer, uh, he sought extra hours with her. Although self-contradictorily, he said that he wouldn't have sex with her once he saw her because she looked like a man. And she mentioned something about sex with men. So it disgusted him. He never had sex with her. So he says. Shannon, who's an experienced escort, called the 911 operator and said, someone is after me. She repeated that three times. Didn't know where she was. She just knew she was on Long Island. And there's a 23-minute 911 tape recording uh, that that uh, she made, basically. On that recording, you can hear that Shannon is trying to get away from someone who was after her. She's accosted within Brewer's home. Uh, you can hear Brewer's voice. You can hear, at some points, Pac's voice, her driver. And you can hear other voices. Those other voices could very well be in the room uh, where she was, or it could be upstairs, or it could be outside the house, either on the deck or on the driveway area, uh, perhaps even in the backyard uh, of Brewer's home. So Shannon is complaining with great upsetment that they're trying to kill her. She says, they're trying to kill me. She repeats that several times. During the 23 minutes that this 911 call lasted, were any emergency responders ever dispatched? No responders were dispatched during the call. The responders ended up coming to the Oak Beach roughly 40 minutes late after Shannon was last seen. She finally decides, stay in the house, Sophie's choice, stay in the house and wait for these people to come in and kill her or go out, confront them and run. She makes the right rational choice. She bolts. You can hear her doing that. You can hear her running. And then she is suddenly accosted. And there's a blood-curdling scream, a lengthy scream, which is really kind of several screams put in one. And she bolts from there. She manages to escape, knocks on doors, eventually knocking on a door of a man named Gus Coletti, who happened to be uh, one of the board members for the association and was very closely associated with other people in the community, such as Dr. Peter Hackett and a man named Thomas Canning and a woman named Barbara Brennan. They were board members, very close, tight part of the community, tight fit together socially. She knocks on Coletti's door roughly six, I'm sorry, roughly 515, 520. He oddly confronts her with aggressive uh, statements, and she then runs immediately from there. You can hear her go down the stairs, and then you don't hear any sound anymore. And that's the last we hear of her on the tape. Coletti tells a variety of stories, four different versions of what occurred, very self-contradictory versions. And Coletti's reason for that is a gift that's given away by Coletti himself when he says to the reporter from the Star-Ledger later on, the Star-Ledger being a newspaper in New Jersey. Ask me any questions you want, but don't ask me to give up my friends. John, at what point is Shannon reported missing to the authorities? Shannon has first reported missing the following day. Uh, that would be May 2nd on a Sunday when Joseph Brewer, the John, called 911 three times and reported her missing. Then 
it was her boyfriend, Alex Diaz, who went along with the driver, Michael Pack, to the police station. I believe Mary Gilbert, Shannon's mother, went with them. And they reported her missing at the local precinct. The precinct left them off, said, oh, don't worry, she's a prostitute, she'll turn up, and sent them to Jersey City. They said, you have to report her as a missing person from where she lived, which was Jersey City, New Jersey. So they went there and made the report. From there, May 3rd came, Monday, Diaz, that's the boyfriend, Alex Diaz, and Michael Pack, the driver, went looking for Shannon at Oak Beach again. And when they did that, they encountered Dr. Peter Hackett. Hackett never reported Shannon missing, even though he claimed that when he met these boys, it was his mission, and that's the word he used, to find her. At what point do investigators say to her driver, you've got to come and sit down and talk to us? Same question for Brewer, um, her client that evening. When do the police say you are the last two folks who we know or two of the last people that we know she had contact with before she disappeared? We need a statement from you on the record right now. When does that happen? We're not sure exactly when that happened. We do know that the police eventually interviewed Brewer and interviewed Pack and let them go, even though they were aware that these two men had committed crimes in bringing Shannon where, where they did. It was even weeks after she disappeared before they finally interviewed Brewer and Pack. And those interviews, by the way, were apparently done initially by the Missing Persons Bureau, not the Homicide Bureau. I do really want to make sure we're painting an accurate picture of is what people knew in May of 2010 and how authorities acted or didn't act on that knowledge. So at the time that Brewer and Hackett uh, are questioned, authorities know about the 23-minute 911 call. What was their explanation, if any, of their relationship to that call? Were they present when, they, when Shannon made the call? Uh, what did they say about that? The call came in. It was two minutes relatively uh, to the county. The county switched the, the call to the New York State Police. They had knowledge that somehow this this event was occurring, what they believed to be near Jones Beach, which is state property. So the state picks it up. And so 21 minutes of that call is New York State's. They had the call at, tw uh, at 21 minutes. And then th that tape belonged to the state police uh, and apparently was never given back to the county. We don't know whether the county examined Brewer and Pack. We don't know if, they, if the police used the tapes to examine Hackett, Brewer, and Pack. We just don't know. You also indicated that at the entrance of this community uh, where Brewer lived, there were cameras. At what point, if ever, do investigators say, let's grab these cameras uh, since, so we can see whatever there may be to see? Do they ever try to secure that evidence? Well, eventually they do. And depending upon whom you ask, we know that they didn't come, they being the police, didn't come for those security tapes until 18 days after Shannon had disappeared. Uh, that's the, the shortest period if you listen to, for example, say Peter Hackett. That was his claim. Uh, but it, other people who say they didn't come for longer than that. 
Mrs. Hackett claimed that the, the tapes were erased after a week, automatically erased. However, the person in charge of the tapes in the security booth was Peter Hackett. The tapes were working at the time of these, this event, and Hackett variously claimed that uh, he knew right away that the tapes were so important that he told nobody to touch them. That were true. Peter Hackett, who was a former surgeon of Suffolk County Police Department, would have known to turn them over to the police immediately. And he didn't. And instead, he either erased them himself or he allowed them to be taped over before the police department came. And the police took their time getting there. So we do not have those tapes anymore. Let's talk about some of the other evidence in the case. Some remnants or pieces of Shannon's clothing were found, as I understand it. And wasn't there a, a jacket or a coat of hers that went missing while in police custody? Yes. Her, as I mentioned before, certain of, of her belongings, her jeans, uh, her, her pocketbook, her cell phone, or one of her cell phones, and her wallet and a bottle, perfume bottle cap were located in the marsh behind Hackett's home in the caddy corner to it. Her leather jacket apparently came off in the struggle outside Brewer's home because it was laying in the driveway. Now, depending who you listen to, Brewer claims that it had been laying there. He told the police about it, and the police never came for it, and after two weeks, he discarded it. That's different than what the police themselves say. When I went to the autopsy meeting with the medical examiner, uh, regarding Shannon in April or May of 2012, months later, the assistant medical examiner pronounced that the police had taken the jacket and lost it. Was any explanation given for how it was lost? Any, just nothing. We'd taken it and we now, we can't find it. No explanation as to how the jacket was lost. It seems to be gone forever. And uh, certainly that jacket and who touched it would have been extremely important. Shannon's death had been uh, ruled by authorities as a drowning. Now, is that consistent with the injuries that were discovered on her body? Wasn't there evidence of trauma on her body, which could have come from the uh, could have been a result of the drowning? But how do you reconcile the official explanation of her death with what you know of the case. And, you know, you've been at this for a pretty long time now. Yeah, I've been at it for 12 years. The first explanation offered by the commissioner of police for Suffolk County, Commissioner Dormer, was that once they had located the jeans and the pocketbook, it was that Shannon had drowned, although they had not yet located her remains. So it's kind of an astounding conclusion without evidence of any kind that she had drowned. Several days later, when she was located, they changed their story. And then they said, well, nope, it, it wasn't that she drowned, but she died of natural causes in the wilderness of the marsh. When the commissioner was challenged by a reporter about how did the jeans, you know, tight jeans come off in, in, in the marsh, he claimed, amazingly, that she likely was running through the marsh and the sticker bushes, the, you know, the bramble bushes 
pulled the, the genes off. That was his explanation. It, 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 beyond absurd. Those were the th- first two conclusions. The police never performed, nor did the medical examiner, any test to see if she had drowned. There's a test you could take of her bone that is expensive, but they never did it. The evidence is overwhelming that she did not drown. In fact, she's laying up face up on, on a bush in the marsh where her re- remains. It's pretty hard to drown face up. Then they claim natural causes because it was, you know, it was in early May. She could have, you know, gotten cold. And of course, that's assuming the marsh is really a very amazingly jungle-like place where you you just couldn't get out once you got in. So I walked the marsh from where the police believed she entered it to where her body was. And I did it in the month of May, the very first week of May, the same time Shannon would have walked it if that turned out to have been true. And, you know, I went in with ropes and people. We, we, had, we had a woman come in who was Shannon's size. And we, we wore fatigue coats and so on. <laughs> we were ready for the worst because they, the commissioner was claiming it was a wilderness with, you know, dangerous animals and, and uh, uh, quicksand and so forth. So we, we went in. And, of course, none of that was true. It was very, very difficult to get in, first of all, even at the point where they claimed she entered it. So that itself was an absurd obstacle that she would have not faced at that, on that morning and tried to overcome. And as you go through the marsh, you realize that, first of all, the, at the time she would have entered it, you can time it based upon the phone calls that she, you know, she, made, that she made and Brennan made. It was already twilight, and dawn was only about 10 minutes away. So it wasn't dark. And if she got all the way across the marsh by herself somehow to where she ended up, uh, you know, about a third of a mile away going through the marsh, say it took another 45 minutes. It was, you know, it was bright sunlight when, when, when she would have died under their explanation. In other words, the explanation makes no sense. In addition, at no time while you're walking through that marsh, was it true that you could not see civilization to the left, to the north? You could hear the car tires going on the Ocean Parkway, Early in the morning, I guess, going to work, you could see the the, uh, the overhead uh, lights, the traffic light, uh, you know, the light poles, and you could see the car lights. And to the right, to the south, toward the bay and the ocean, you could see houses uh, all, all along Oak Beach. You could even see into the windows of people having coffee. So even if the, the reeds got in your way, it wasn't too hard. To, to hear and see that civilization was nearby. It would take an amazing act of self-willed death to die as she did, and there's no evidence that she killed herself whatsoever. So what's the explanation? If you take the circumstances, the explanation collectively is hugely in favor of homicide, not only because she calls 911, says she's being followed, says she's about to be killed, runs, bolts, disappears, her clothes are left in a different place than where she is or some of her clothing in her pocketbook, and then she's found in the condition she she's found are enough to tell you that homicide is the greatest likelihood. However, we also then, uh, in 2016, I found an old friend, Michael Bodden, who is a world-renowned the world-renowned medical examiner, the number one in the world, 
And luckily, I had played semi-professional football with his brother, Bobby. And Bobby helps him with his autopsies. So he graciously uh, agreed to do pro bono work with me. And we, we were able, I had to fight the county to get her bones. I got the bones. And we brought them to a funeral parlor where we you know, performed what's left of an autopsy. And we were able to see that the hyoid bone in the neck, it's a little, very small U-shaped bone in your neck. It's the only bone that's not connected to any other bone. Uh, We were able to see the hyoid bone. If the hyoid bone is fractured in any way, then it's a sign of strangulation. And in strangulation of women, whenever they're strangled or hung, uh, their hyoid bone breaks 99 or something, 90% of the time, something like that. And this hyoid bone was, was there, but the horns on the bone were broken off. And on one side, it was all jagged. In other words, it got fractured. In the center of the bone, which is a, the base of the bone, you know, if you picture it in a U shape, at the base, there was a hole, a round hole, that went right through the bone. The county had reported that it was a dent. That was not accurate. It was a hole. You could see right through it. It was a pretty a circular hole that went right, through, which is unnatural. It doesn't belong there. Dr. Biden said that his findings were that her death was consistent with homicide and inconsistent with natural causes. That's what he said. And he was the, the, the medical examiner for Suffolk County for two years. So, for, for the county to ignore and for the police to ignore that evidence is stunning. But that's what they're doing. Has there been any effort to revisit any of this evidence uh, in light of Hewerman's arrest? I know, again, that Hewerman has not yet been or hasn't been uh, connected to Shannon's disappearance. But has there been any effort to revisit any of these any of these earlier findings? There's been no effort to revisit any of the earlier findings yet. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot more evidence than what I've described to you, all of which is consistent with the narrative that she was murdered. And I have it. And I have in the past presented a body of it to the police who rejected it, would refuse to even look at it. Now we have the new district attorney, the new commissioner of police, the new task force, Perhaps they will look at it again. Now, so far, the police commissioner, in keeping with the police investigation that took place, the the disgraceful investigation that took place, he has said, well, there's no new evidence. As far as we're concerned, she died of a tragic accident. They, of course, these are homicide detectives who deal their lives in evidence, and they know they have to have evidence, always evidence to convict. So they're, they're suffused, they're immersed in evidence, and yet without a scintilla of evidence, they declare her to have drowned, um, to have um, uh, died of a tragic accident. They don't identify the accident. They have no evidence that she died of an accident. They have, you know, beaucoup evidence that she did not die of an accident, and they declare that she dies of an accident. There's something very, very wrong with that process. So we hope... You know, I have enough confidence right now in the current task force. We're hoping that finally the task force will do the right thing, reopen this and get back into it. And at 
at my urging, I have, you know, a lot of very poignant evidence. And I've been doing this for 41 years, this kind of work. I think I've, you know, the respect of, of the, uh, the district attorney very much so, who I've known many years. I have enough to go back to him and say, you know, Ray Tierney, take a look at this. Let's reopen this and see what happens. Has he responded to, have you made that overture to him yet? No, I have not. I waited for, you know, I let him basically have his face. I've spoken with Rodney Harrison. I met with him early on in his career, in his um, commissionerhood, (laughs) about a year ago, February. He came to visit me at my office, and that's when he agreed, finally, to release the audio tapes, copies of which I had. I had to fight through the courts and through appeals, two of them, to get the tape. It took years. I got it. I got the other tapes as well, but I wasn't, ironically, allowed to use them except in the case. So they were basically useless. I needed the, the, the police commissioner to release them, and he did. So that broke the ice. But after that, nothing else happened. How and why you got involved in this case in the first uh, place? So Shannon goes missing in May of 2010. Remains are discovered in December of 2011. Shannon's mother, who uh, very sadly has passed away, really has to push to get authorities to pay attention. How do you get involved? How, how do you start to um, how do you start to represent the family? Well, there had been a murder, actually a mass murder, that took place in Suffolk County, in a town of Medford, where a man named Laffer, who was a oxycodone addict, broke into a drugstore that was dealing heavily in oxycodone, uh, or walked in actually while there were customers there, and shot assassinated five people. One of the persons assassinated, Jamie Tassetta, had children at home, two little children. And at Laffer's sentencing, when he was caught with his wife and at their sentencing, I I was uh, asked by the family of the two little girls to speak on behalf of the little girls, you know, on behalf of the victims, because they couldn't speak for themselves. And so what I did at the, the sentencing of Laffer I became the two little girls. I, you know, channeled them, as it were, and spoke about playing with Barbies and, you know, waiting for Mama to come home and she never comes. And this I did, you know, effectively, I think. So um, one of the news reporters who was at the sentencing from the Daily News in New York approached me and said, look, there's this woman named Mary Gilbert who would also like your help in her case, which was the case of... Shannon Gilbert. So I met Mary Gilbert with the reporter from the Daily News at a bar in Islip in Suffolk County, and I agreed to represent her in doing one thing, and that was to try to get the FBI to intervene in the uh, investigation and get the Suffolk County police to back down, get away, because they had bungled it so badly. Well, we held the press conference to that effect. I wrote a letter to the United States attorney asking them to intervene. Nothing was done. We were, you know, signally ignored. And the U.S. attorney never wrote back. We later found out that it was uh, we were basically shut down by the new Suffolk police chief, uh, James Burke, 
who was a morally corrupt and, and a criminal man who had a predilection for the solicitation and use of escorts. And uh, he was in charge of the investigation of the death of escorts. So think about that. And he came in, shut down the investigation, uh, pushed out all the other authorities that were investigating, isolating the Suffolk County police and letting them carry the ball alone. We found out subsequent to that, uh, although I continued to criticize the police, we found out that the police had assigned to this vast investigation that was a huge you know, news story for day after day, week after week of the 11 people who were dead. They had assigned exactly one detective who worked part time on the job on this case. And that was true right up until Rodney Harrison took office a little over a year ago. So you get a real flavor for what the Suffolk County Police Department did under these circumstances. Interstate crimes, a desperate 911 phone call, evidence of uh, clothing found uh, at the scene, but no FBI involvement. FBI is being blocked by Burke because uh, you point out uh, he was in quite a situation himself. Wasn't Burke being himself investigated by the FBI, which is why he wanted to keep that agency at arm's length. Am I right about that? Yes. Uh, th th there's evidence that Burke suppressed the investigation on purpose and drove the FBI out. He also drove the state police out and he drove the New Jersey City police out. They were doing a missing persons investigation as to Shannon and they were doing a very good job of it. And he, they were all shut down. And so was Nassau County police as well. So Burke basically isolated Suffolk County for whatever his reasons Unfortunately and very sadly, Mary Gilbert passed away very tragically. What was law enforcement saying like before she gets you involved? What was her experience with law enforcement? Were they just ignoring her? Were they saying what they said to the families of some of the other victims? You know, because she was a sex worker, uh, you got to wait longer to file the report or we're not going to take the report. What was her relationship um, with, with law enforcement like before you came on board? Mary Gilbert's approach to law enforcement was respectful. And uh, she relied completely on the Suffolk County police to investigate. She actively uh, sought to have them do the investigation and was more or less in regular contact with them regarding it to no avail. That's when she brought me in eight days after Shannon's remains were found to get them out and get the FBI in if we could. And, and parenthetically, I stayed in the case because a few days after I held that press conference, the, the, a detective in the Homicide Bureau from Suffolk County wrote me a letter, single space, two pages, that explained in detail, somewhat detail, what was on the 911 tape and also wrote it on police union stationery. So here was a, a dyed-in-the-wool detective who would never go outside of his regulations, going outside of all regulations, revealing evidence during an investigation, and doing it on union stationery, and claiming that Shannon was uh, calm at all times, that the other people in the room were calm at all times. Nobody was being threatened. 
there was no danger that, that she was in whatsoever, and she was acting irrationally. That's what his letter said. And then he went, and after he criticized me heavily in that letter, he took that letter and published it as a feature letter in Newsday uh, so that the, narr- the pol- official police narrative was unofficially put on the street by them in that fashion for the next 12 years. Those statements by this detective turned out to be outright falsehoods, as we all now know from hearing the tape. I knew they were falsehoods when we went to the medical examiner in April or May of 2012, and she announced that there was a struggle on the tapes, that that Shannon was excited and felt threatened. She didn't tell us about the screams. But she did tell, tell us what I just said, which is completely contradictory to what the police had said. So we knew the police were lying about what happened. We never knew why. To this day, I still don't know really why. Uh, you can surmise many things, a lot of inferences, but we're not sure of exactly what drove that. But there's no doubt that they outright lied to me and to the public. That's what kept me in the case. I stayed in it, and then I started the lawsuit against Peter Hackett, and here we are. But as far as Mary is concerned, once I get in it, I kind of ran the ball after that. But until now, no, but Mary was still committed to finding her daughter and then her other daughter being driven mad by the loss of her sister, whom she adored and, and worshipped, lost her mind and, and, and killed her mother. Um, so I became the lawyer for Sarah the daughter that did the killing because she was insane and I was trying to help the family. You also represent the family of Jessica Taylor. Uh, This year marks 20 years since Jessica's body was found. Has any progress been made in that investigation? Uh, There's been progress we've made uh, with information we've had and we've turned it over to the police and the police independently have done, you know, their work to some degree on that. Um, but there's still a lot more work to be done. And now with the new task force, we're seeing a reactivation of the looking at the, the evidence in that investigation by the police. So we're optimistic that they'll, they'll do their job correctly and get this done. But that's as far as I could say we've gone. Before you go, John, it, it strikes me that this case, these cases, um, what happened to these women really is emblematic of a number of different types of failures. There are systemic failures uh, in how victims uh, are treated when they are in the sex industry. There also seem to be some very idiosyncratic things about this case. Uh, We have a uh, police investigator who was himself being investigated and stymied help from other agencies. And it turns out, as we see from the work of this task force, that it's the interagency cooperation that really helped crack things open. You say you are optimistic. And again, recognizing that there are some unique factors that may be at play with respect to the different Uh, folks who are involved here, but are you optimistic that systemically law enforcement and investigators and institutions will do a better job of protecting women and people in this circumstance? I mean, I I remember reading that in one of these uh, press conferences a a while back, 
a journalist or a cameraman who was covering it was reported as having said something along the lines of, you know, I can't believe we're doing all of this uh, for, and then, you know, he sort of used a, a slur about the sex worker victim. Are you optimistic that we will do a better job looking out for classes of victims who are so regularly and easily discarded? It's a harder, harder question to answer easily, of course. Um, the the police officer who was then, I think, the chief of patrol of the or chief of police of the county force back then, I think his statement was along the lines that don't worry um, to the to Suffolk County residents, the serial killer is picking on women from a certain class, so you have nothing to worry about. And when that was said, of course, you can well imagine the reaction to that. And that, that, that I think, describes or defines the attitude of the police department at that time. Now, does that change over time? We hope, you know, with education and so forth. I don't know, but experience perhaps. But, uh, you know, that attitude was deeply rooted in the police department for these reasons. I think first that, in no particular order, <laughs> these people that they're talking about, they perceive naturally, because the law says so, as criminals. So they treat criminals differently than they treat others. And that's true of every criminal. But then when you deal with the, you know, the crime of prostitution, you know, and the practice of it, the low esteem that the police hold for these people drops significantly because of the nature of what they're doing. Or, and so they lose, the police tend to lose, I think, as do members of society, the sense that these women are human, that they are uh, deserving of attention and deserving of the protection of the law, at least, and that they are themselves victims of the very system that they find themselves caught in very often victims of drug addiction, uh, victims of other problems like that, um, sometimes mental disorders and the like, that people suffer, but they take a different course. And because the, these women take this course, very often not on their own, very often recruited into the system by sex traffickers. They're treated as if they're completely monsters at fault for everything which happens to them. So good riddance to them is the attitude. That attitude is going to be always hard to change because the law doesn't change. And people are people. They'll always have those kinds of bad attitudes, but we can perhaps mitigate that them and you know temper them by recognizing the humanity of these poor, poor girls who foolishly or recklessly or unintentionally or sadly were dragged into the system. I look at them as children of God. And um, no matter their age, and they are deserving of the same protection that Mary Magdalene, the saint that's, that was supposedly a prostitute, the kind of protection she ultimately received. So I'd say the same for these girls. They should be treated in the same fashion. 
I think what's interesting and important to remember is that these were women who had plans and families and hopes and dreams, in some cases really saw the sex work as a temporary thing that would hopefully be a path to something better. And for the victims, unfortunately, it didn't work out like that. John Ray, uh, I wish you the best of luck in seeking justice uh, for Shannon, and I hope you'll come back and, and keep us all posted. I will. 